Well, this past week has brought some fascinating theater in the media with Under the Providence of God, Elon Musk purchasing Twitter. And though this has been interesting to watch purely in the drama of it all, the ramifications really are not insignificant. Twitter now is the primary megaphone for the globe. And with the increased censorship in our day, Musk, who is a self-proclaimed free speech absolutist, comes out of nowhere and just bought the megaphone. So it'll be interesting to see, again, under the providence of God, the impact that this will have in the coming days. So how did he do it? Because initially the board of Twitter was against his offer. Not only were they against the offer, they actively tried to to thwart it. Well, obviously we aren't privy to all the going on in the actual negotiations. And I've heard somewhere that media might have a narrative to play when they tell us things. I'm not sure. But there was a moment when a shift happened in the drama, a discernible shift where the leverage clearly changed to Musk's advantage. And part of it was the moment when he pointed out through Twitter that the board, apart from Jack Dorsey, the founder, who will soon not be on the board, owned almost zero Twitter stock. When their whole job is to make financially wise decisions on behalf of the shareholders, why would they then reject an offer that was far more, made the stock far more valuable than it was or was even projected to be? Why would they do that if their whole point is to make financially wise decisions? Musk's argument was that because they had no stock, then, in quotes, objectively, their economic interests are simply not aligned with the shareholders. That is to say, the most powerful decision makers here will not be impacted financially one way or the other by the decisions they make. So his implication was that their decision was politically motivated, not actually what was in the best interest of the shareholders. And though Musk's point was well made, he, of course, was simply restating a principle that the Lord Jesus Christ himself said 2,000 years ago even more eloquently. Namely, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you have financially invested your heart, your affections, your genuine interest will necessarily be tethered to that. And again, I don't claim any special knowledge in the Twitter negotiation, but I do know within a few days of that tweet, he owned the company. So who knows? Well, today, as we enter back into the book of Philippians, as we approach again the finish line, if I've counted right, I think this is week 40 in our study. Today, the Apostle Paul is going to help us understand better why he has such a unique relationship with The Philippians, of course, Pastor Paul loves all the church that he writes to. He overflows not with just doctrine, but with affection often. Yet the Philippians clearly held a very special place in his heart. And we see that part of the reason this was true is because they had partnered financially with him in his ministry. Paul alluded to this even at the very beginning of his letter when he wrote, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all make my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And in our text today, we'll learn that he was speaking specifically about financial gifts and how initially it was only the Philippians who partnered with him financially. They were the only ones who, up until that point, had put their treasure 
where their heart was. And Paul wants him to know how truly grateful he was for that. But, as we'll see, he's also quick to remind them again that even in receiving their gift, it was not primarily his benefit, his profit, that he was most after, but it was theirs. Paul wanted them to be confident that Christian generosity, giving by faith, giving in the name of Jesus Christ, is always the right choice. And he's going to lay out two primary motivations for Christian generosity in our text. Number one, because it sows seed that will bear eternal fruit. And two, because sacrifice is pleasing to God, and that is a sacrifice. And so we'll spend the next two weeks unpacking these motivations that he will highlight for us. And I want to state up front that my primary hope for us today, though we'll hit a few other things as we go through the text, my primary hope for us in this sermon is I want God to amaze us in a fresh way by showing that he uses our temporary generosity to produce eternal fruit that would not have existed had we not been generous. I want us to see that in the text and just be amazed that that is true and then go and live like Christians. And to be clear, this is not a tithing sermon. I'm not primarily even thinking in terms of tithing or even necessarily giving financially towards the church. That, of course, is part of our generosity and it's actually Paul's point in the context but my goal isn't to put before us one specific place to be generous, necessarily. Rather, I want us to see why it's always wise to have a reflex of generosity with all that we have and all that we are. Okay, well, I probably read the text at this point, lest I end up preaching the whole sermon without ever actually reading it. So open up to Philippians 4, the last chapter, and I'm going to read verses 14 through 20, though we'll primarily land in 14 through 17, but I'll, I'll read all of this because we will continue on next week. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, Paul says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So at least twice they sent financial assistance. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And again, this is the word of the Lord. So earlier in chapter 4, Paul was expressing his gratitude for their concern for him, namely... 
through the gift that he received through Epaphroditus that they sent, the brother they had carried the gift to Paul. But lest they think that his contentment was dependent on anything physical, Paul quickly lets them know that because he has experienced the Lord's faithfulness so many times and in so many ways, that he has learned the secret of always being content no matter where he's been. So that's where we're coming from. And so their gift was a blessing. He loved it. He appreciated it. But he wanted them to know that it was not load-bearing for his emotional state. He would not have fallen apart without it. And this, again, was not to downplay their gift, but it was rather to upplay the incredible sustaining and stabilizing power of Jesus Christ that is available to the Christian. And then now here, so we said all that, I can do all those things through Christ who strengthens me. That was our last verse. And here he's circling back to them saying, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Now the word here rendered kind is probably better rendered fitting or, or good. It was fitting of you. It was good for you to have done that. He's saying, though I didn't need it, it was befitting Christians to share in the trouble of a brother that they love. Yes, Jesus Christ is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Yes, Jesus Christ will personally sustain you through whatever he calls you to. And yes, we really do need each other. We need each other in the church, and it's not because Christ isn't enough. It is because when Christ wants to minister to you, he often does it through the body of Christ in the church, which is the person sitting in the chair next to you. We minister to each other with Christ's power on his behalf. So Paul says, Philippians, you did well to share in my trouble because you acted like Christians. This is what it means to, to together be the one body of Jesus Christ. And in a healthy and maturing church, when one person in the body has trouble, then we all have trouble. It is fitting to share the trouble because we are one body. And this is also a cautionary tale as well for those who never let themselves be known, who don't have anyone who shares trouble with them because you can't share somebody's trouble if you don't know what the trouble is and, and that's not noble that's proud now our trouble won't look like paul's we aren't on trial for our lives we probably aren't in danger of shipwreck or martyrdom but we all do have troubles we all have weaknesses and we all have temptations and we all have things we're suffering with we all have burdens of sin we all have troubles that need to be shared with another mature Christian or two who can carry it. And true, specific spiritual camaraderie is a thickening agent in the church. There's a reason soldiers form such tight bonds. It's because they've been in the trenches together. They've felt the fire of affliction together. So let's also be with each other in the trenches of the week. Yes, we need to come together for corporate worship. This is wonderful and irreplaceable, but it's, it's not the extent of our Christian fellowship. 
We need to have a brother or two or a sister or two who are in the trenches with us, who are bearing our burdens. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Part of the reason you were born was to be with somebody in their adversity. That's one of the reasons we exist in the body, to be in adversity together. So Paul had the Philippians. He says, it was fitting that you shared my trouble. I wonder, who is that for you? Continuing on in verses 15 through 16 now, Paul writes, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in, in giving and receiving only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So, a little context. Paul had planted the Philippian church, and Philippi was in eastern Macedonia, which is what he likely means by the beginning of the gospel in this text, namely the planting of the church. It was when the gospel work in Philippi began, that. And we find that in Acts 16. So after he planted it, Paul left them, and at the beginning of Acts 17, we see him go immediately to Thessalonica. And so we see all these pieces coming together. And again, the Philippians were the only church who supported Paul. Now, this isn't necessarily a dig at the other churches. Um, he even says elsewhere, others had, had no opportunity. And with the Corinthians in particular, he refused to take financial assistance from them. Namely, because they were accustomed to having orators ask for money. And so Paul didn't want to have anything to do with that in Corinth. He didn't want to take his proclamation of the gospel by getting in the game that the other orators played. And so Paul supported himself through tent making with Priscilla and Aquila. We see that in Acts 18. He joined their Etsy store and made tents with them. But that wasn't enough to support his ministry. And so the Philippians stepped up and they sent support to fuel the Corinthian work. And Paul lets the Corinthians know this in 2 Corinthians 11.9. So here we see these two pieces connecting Philippians 4 and 2 Corinthians 11. He says, when I was with you and I was in need, I did not burden any of you. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, Philippi, they supplied my need. So I refrained, and I will refrain from burdening you in any way. So the Philippians were helping, helping to foot the Corinthian bill. And it's not because they were especially wealthy or because they had so much excess. In fact, it's, it's quite the opposite. Three chapters before in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. So he was like, I, I want to brag on those churches for a minute because they're the ones who are paying for me to be here. He says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. And so that's a remarkable equation. Abundant joy plus extreme poverty in Philippi overflowed into a wealth of generosity. Notice it didn't say a wealth of money. It did not say that. It said it overflowed in a wealth of generosity. 
So the Philippians were the widow at the temple, giving what seemed in Wall Street's eyes to be so trivial and small and insignificant, but in Christ's eyes, it was huge. And in God's hands, it became more than enough, enough to cause the gospel to quest out further and further. So we're proclaiming it now in Tennessee. Indeed, it's not an overstatement to say even our salvation is the downstream impact of the Philippians' generosity because they were the first to contribute to Paul, and Paul's the one who brought the gospel to the Gentiles. And so we are indebted to the Philippians. This is not an abstract text for us. Indeed, under the providence of God, this is the great-great-great-grandfather of our salvation. So this helps us give more dimension to Paul's his appreciation and his affection for the Philippians. And Paul wanted them to know, pastorally and, and personally, that he was, he was so thankful for them. He wanted them to know that, that he saw their extreme poverty, he saw the, the, the challenge it was practically to give, and he was thankful for that. You know yourselves that I know. You were the only one. And I also know that you were extremely poor. But he has another reason for bringing up their previous giving. And it's not because he wants them to send more. That's not his purpose at all. He is explicit about that. I am well supplied, he said. This is not a hard press. Rather, he wants to explain to them why their generosity... And by extension, why all Christian generosity done in faith from love in the name of Jesus Christ is always the right decision. If you have any investments, when you see your accountant calling, you may catch your breath just for a moment to see which way is this going to go. What's the news? Well, Paul is an accountant calling and the news is good to let them know that when they chose to be generous, even through their poverty, in some ways, perhaps because of their poverty, right? Isn't it interesting how sometimes the people with least are the most generous because they get it? He wants them to know it was the right move because on the heavenly NASDAQ, their stock is soaring. Verses 17 through 19. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your account. I've received full payment. I'm not looking for anything more. I'm well supplied because I got what Epaphroditus brought me as well. So I am, I'm good. It's a sacrifice and it was acceptable and it's fragrant and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours. Don't worry. According to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So why does Paul say that their generosity was wise? Two big reasons, the ones that I stated earlier. Because it is both seed and it is sacrifice. I get that from where Paul says, I'm more excited about the fruit that you'll receive for giving than even me in receiving. That is what I'm calling seed because it bears fruit. And then, of course, the sacrifice, he specifically says the gift was a pleasing sacrifice. So we'll look at that next week. The rest of our time today will focus on the motivation of generosity being seed. Because that is a biblical good 
motivation for Christian generosity. Perhaps the first thing to notice is this. The idea that we should have no personal, no personal motivation for giving is totally unbiblical. That if there's any personal incentive behind giving, then it's devoid of moral or spiritual good. That's simply unbiblical, according to this text. In others, the Bible is rife with incentives for why we should be generous. Now, of course, we can be misguided in our motives and often are because of our sin and greed. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 3, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But that doesn't mean just kind of space out for a moment so that you don't even think about what you're doing at all. I used to think that's kind of what it, what it means. Just try really hard to not even think about what you're doing. That's not what it means. It means be discreet about it. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give it discreetly. Give it intentionally, on purpose, thoughtfully, but don't make a scene. Just do it discreetly. And we know this is what Jesus means by that because we keep reading when he says, so that your giving may be in secret and your father who saw it will reward you. So that's what the Bible says. That's just what Jesus said. When you're giving, do it discreetly so that men don't applaud, but God will applaud and he will reward you. And this is what Christ through Paul is continuing to help us understand. Why be generous? Because your father sees. And it turns out that he owns everything. And so I want to unpack this for us so that we give like Christians on purpose, not with a false humility, but with a thoughtful intentionality. And again, to be clear, when I'm using the word generous here, I'm not just thinking of money, not even primarily. I'm thinking of generosity, of, of hospitality, of, of service, of presence, of talents. Growing in Christian generosity is not simply about giving more money. It's not less than that, certainly, but it's much more than that. So back to our text, Paul says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And so this is accounting language Paul is using. He says, your giving was wise and good and fitting because you will get more than you gave. That's why I wanted you to give it is so that you'll get more. Fruit will increase to your credit. He says, think about giving like this, what you will get out of it. Do you feel uncomfortable yet at all? Right? Because isn't this exactly what the prosperity gospel says? Isn't this the health and wealth Gospel? Just name it and claim it. Just sow seed so that you can get your harvest. Isn't this just turning generosity into selfishness? That's what perhaps you might be asking at this point, and you would be right to do so. Because I'm arguing that Paul is telling the Philippians that that gift you gave me, think more about what you're getting from it than what I got from it. That's how I think about it. Is that not the logic of the verse? So how is this not just health and wealth prosperity, which it is not? That is a rank heresy. God is not a vending machine. Well, the answer hinges on what does he mean by fruit? 
right? Isn't that the answer to that equation? What is the fruit? What do you get? And here's what it is. He's speaking of true fruit. He's speaking of eternal fruit. He's speaking of a lasting, redemptive impact. He's speaking of an eternal return on a temporary investment that is far more substantial than any physical stuff you would get. And so when the Philippians pulled up their physical resources and they sent them to Paul, Paul is saying the moment that you release that, a transfiguration happened in the economy of heaven. The physical money they sent in God's grace and through his power caused a redemptive impact that would now exist and grow for all of eternity. The Philippians had added something real to the new creation. That's what they had done. Or they got fruit that would increase to their credit. On the final day, we'll survey the new creation together the final redeemed state, and we will see the fruit that was produced under God because the seed that we had sown that he had given us. Christians should think like this. We have the chance every day and a hundred times even to sow temporary seed that will produce eternal fruit. And that's a holy and a good motivator. And not only is Jesus okay with you thinking like that, he commands you to think like that. Luke 12. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with a money bag that won't grow old. And with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so this is where the health and wealth gospel twists a glorious truth. Because it thinks in terms only of the now and therefore appeals primarily to the carnal and the fleshly. But that's not what Jesus or Paul is teaching. Rather, they're teaching us to think constantly in terms of the heavenly Nasdaq. To understand that when we are generous in the here and now, when we give anything in Christ's name, we are sowing seed that will bloom fully in the new creation without fail, guaranteed return. Or to think of it another way, being generous now, is like converting monopoly money for new creation gold. And longing to get a heavenly return on an earthly investment is not selfish. It's called wisdom. It's called holiness. And it's exactly what motivated Jesus Christ himself to give himself for the joy set before him. He gave. Well, to conclude... Perhaps a little word picture might help put some flesh on these bones, on how does, practically, how does thinking in real time, temporary seed for eternal fruit, what does that look like in a Christian's life? So this is just one example. Imagine a young woman joins Pilgrim Hill, and she's a new mom and a Christian, but it's clear that she's somewhat immature in the faith, and she's feeling pretty overwhelmed by the task of mothering, maybe it's her first child, 
And her extended family doesn't live in the area, so she doesn't have the helping hands. And so one of you gals notices this, and you perceive what's going on. You, you get that, <laughs> and you feel drawn towards her. You felt the pressures. You've been there, and you've seen God's faithfulness. You have a testimony to share. Yet you have plenty on your own plate. So moving towards her intentionally will take something from you. It will require generosity, true generosity. Yet you know the spirit is at work. She's on your mind for a reason. So you get her number and you shoot her a text saying, hey, so I get a babysitter every other Tuesday morning for myself so that I can just get out for an hour or two and read and get some coffee. Why don't you drop your kid off with mine on those weeks? And we'll go and grab coffee together. And we'll work through a book on Christian motherhood together for the next three months, every other week. My treat on the babysitter and the coffee. And so she eagerly agrees. Now you've not overcommitted, right? Three months, there's a shelf life on this every other week. There's boundaries set up. And so it happens. You guys go, you begin a rhythm, and maybe going through Loving the Little Years, a helpful book for Christian moms. And you pour into the relationship. You offer your time and, and your money and your wisdom, and you are doing it all by faith. This is real generosity. This is costing you. You have plenty of other things. Or you would just want it's time for yourself. And you see her growing stronger, and you see her more confident, and you see her intense anxiety start to diminish a little bit. And she starts to get a little more radiant and by the end of the three months, there's been some genuine, discernible growth. Do you know what that's called? Fruit. That's called fruit. And it will last forever now. And it won't just impact her. It will impact her husband and her children and her grandchildren and will grow into eternity. And that fruit costs you something. It costs you maybe 200, 250 bucks in babysitting and, and coffee and the time you would have had to yourself. So that's not insignificant. That was a real cost. It was generosity. And it's nothing compared to the fruit that it has started to grow and will grow. And it is totally right for you, like a little child at a strawberry patch, running to your heavenly father and saying, look what I did. Look what I got. I got some fruits. And he says, you did. That, that increases to your account. That's fruit that under me you, you produced. Now, he's the farmer. He owns it all. He didn't need you. But he's not patronizing you. He really did use you to begin a fruitful work that will quest out now. So do, do, do you see how, how, how that works? And here's what's amazing. You got fruit as well. The fruit of the Holy Spirit. More love and more joy and more peace and more patience. And suppose after those three months, a friend who's observed the growth in this gal says to you, so how's, how's it feel? How, how was that for you? And you said, it was such a joy for me. You know what she won't say to you? You're so selfish. It was a joy for you? Now, of course, that's not what she says. Because <laughs> that's not how, how that works. It's not selfish. It's It's holy. God wants us to have pleasure and joy, but he wants us to learn how to truly get it. And it's when we pour out ourselves in eternal fruit, not through more Amazon Prime orders. You can't get stuff that lasts there. It doesn't work. It's through self-giving. 
It's through Christ-empowered love, through Christian generosity, that sows seed that bears true, good, and delicious fruit that will exist in the new creation. Or, as Proverbs 11.25 says, whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will themselves be watered. So obviously the example is quite narrow, but it's just an example. What does that look like for you? What's a creative opportunity to be generous? Let's be on the lookout for that. Let's live open-handedly, on purpose, for the glory of Christ, and for the good fruit that will increase to our credit. Amen. Our Lord and our God, we pray that your word would sink deeply into our bones. We know that even now, the enemy hates your word. He hates generosity. He hates biblical instruction, and he wants to steal it and distract us. Father, I pray that you would bind him and that you, for your glory, would make Pilgrim Hill into a wildly, radically, creatively generous people who who love to live open-handedly, who know it's hard. That's why you said, be hospitable and don't grumble, (laughs) because it's easy to grumble. Help us to keep one eye on the plow and one eye on the horizon and to really believe our little seed bag that you've given us, if we would sow it open-handedly, we would be astonished to see the thousand-fold return we get in the new creation. May it be. And now we would pray the way our Lord taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. Well, now our Lord invites us to table fellowship with his very person and with each other in the sacrament of communion. And in these elements, as I mentioned in the sermon, we have the true picture of generosity, of self-giving, which was motivated by the desire to sow seed that would bear eternal fruits. That is, the Lord Jesus Christ willingly and gladly poured out his blood into the soil of this earth because he knew that it would yield the fruit of his church and that by his blood he would ransom many. Isaiah 53, 11 says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall now look and be satisfied. Jesus Christ was the true Philippian, for in abundant joy he made himself extremely poor, which then overflowed into a wealth of generosity towards us. So baptized believer, come, and come knowing that it was Christ's joy to redeem you, and come and behold the generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and come and feast on Jesus.